I'm going to take a few minutes' time, but I'm going to do this in a very real, very personal way. You know, I've been involved in missions and evangelism for 40-plus years. I'm a father. My wife and I have six children. Uh, We have 15 grandchildren so far. And we've watched all of them grow up and all of the changes that have taken place. I spend much of my time traveling the nations of the world. I work in some 100-plus countries. And so I'm watching what's happening. And I particularly have been watching in the United States. I've been involved with evangelism in about 2,000-plus cities in the United States over these years in many different forms. And actually, many, 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 many years ago, I went forward to the Billy Graham campaign, and it profoundly affected my life. And as I think about this journey, and I was meditating on it as I was sitting there this morning, America right now is in a very desperate place on many levels. But most of the conversations aren't the right conversations. They're political conversations. There's a lot of complaint. We get together in our small forums as Christians, and we talk to each other about what we don't like as we get older, and we watch many of the morals disappear. But I want to go back to the scripture, and I'm so glad we covered Matthew 28 this morning several times, because that is one of the main points of the Great Commission, or main descriptions Jesus gave of the Great Commission. But there's one little word in that that isn't talked about too much, and that's the word go. He said to go. And, of course, we have the word go several different places in Scripture. So it's not just that the Great Commission has to happen in this kind of environment. We have to go somewhere. Now, it might be across the street. It might be upstate. It might be around the globe, as I do much of the time I travel. But until somebody actually goes, and when they go do something, nothing changes. We can huddle among ourselves, and we need to do that. We need to worship. We need to be edified, built up. We need to have family life. There's so many components there that we have to be part of to be strong and to grow but clearly the new testament says that we go into all the world and we make disciples of all nations which is people groups every people group in the earth has to be engaged Uh, there are many thousands of them i work in a lot of unreached peoples around the world but one of the big people groups that's not being engaged right now is the two and a half billion young two and a half billion young people in the world under the age of 18 and less than one percent of them know christ In the United States, 97% of young people under 18 years of age don't know Christ. 97%. We're not in a situation anymore where we have to tweak something and shift a little Sunday school program and do a couple things different. You know, I pastored many years and I did a lot of that. But we aren't there. We're in a crisis right now. We're in a wholesale crisis. We have missed two and a half generations of young people in this country. And what we're seeing now is the byproduct of that. So the gospel, the Bible as a foundation, has been eroded in every single category of life. Now, we could talk more about that, and that's the stuff we usually talk about around the dinner table and after we watch some news program. But that's not going to get it done. Instead, we have to look in the mirror. We have to look at ourselves. We have to look at how we have lived. Something has gone wrong with what we've been living because we as the body of Christ with 400,000 churches in this country should have made changes. We should have reached these generations. We didn't reach them. We didn't go to them. We didn't preach to them. We didn't share with them. We didn't care for our neighbor. We didn't take them in. We didn't invite them to our house. We gave over so many categories of the spheres of society, education and family and government and science and technology and the arts and media. All these things have been affected now with pure secular thought. So we have to change, and we need to change now. 
It's no longer something where we wish that's great. What's the date of that? Boy, I want to attend. We're not there. I'll tell you where I'm at. I've done a lot of evangelism, a lot of missions work, as I said, for many, many years all over the world. But these final weeks or days or months or years that I have left, whatever the Lord allows, my wife and I have recommitted ourselves to change our lives now at this late stage in our life, but to give ourselves more fervently under the lordship of Jesus than we ever have before. We're selling our house. We're moving into a small apartment. We're going to unencumber ourselves from the things that would take our time. I don't want to spend the final years of my life grooming a dog and mowing the lawn. No, I'm serious. I, we are so... We're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus. And I don't want to go from self-gratification, indulging myself, you know, counting how many mutual funds I have into the presence of the Lord. Something has to change. And I want to change. I have to look in the mirror. It wouldn't be honest. It wouldn't be right if I didn't make the changes, if my wife and I didn't make changes that we're asking everybody else to make. And so we've made some decisions these final uh, weeks of last year. And uh, we are putting our house up for sale next week. And, and we're going to really take our life and move it down to a simple level. And then we're going to give ourselves that we never have before to prayer, to personal witness, to reaching people who live around us, and to global missions, which we're very involved with. And I'm going to help young people. We're going to be training up the next generation in a whole new way. I'm not going to just go buy them here and there and tell them something. And we're going to invest in them. Now, we've done that with our kids, and they're all serving the Lord. And that's the grace of God. We're so grateful. Our grandchildren now are serving the Lord quicker and more fervently than even our children did. And I want to say to you as a word of encouragement, this next generation, if we'll go to them, if we'll take the time to talk to them, if we'll preach the word, if we'll go public with the gospel, which is the title of a book I wrote some years ago, but... If we will do that, they are more hungry than they have ever been before. They are responding in greater numbers. They have greater fervency. But let me tell you something about this next generation. And then we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and read a few scriptures together. But this next generation that we're talking about engaging in March here in Delaware is more uh, open to the Lord Jesus, but they want to live for something that's worth dying for. They don't want a little bit of Jesus. They don't want a little religious experience. They don't just want to join something. They want to sell out. They want to live for something that has cause to it. They want to lay their life down for something. Now, I think that's natural for a young person. But this generation, we must understand, I think we all do, they have been so corrupted, so attacked from every side, they have moved into areas of sin that we didn't even think about until we were 18, 20, 25 when I was young. But they're engaged with it at 8. 10, 12, 14. They have many of the young people we get into our training programs now. We have to spend so much time trying to repair them, even to begin to disciple them in other categories, because they are so wrecked by the immorality, by the horrible environments that they've been around, the wrong influences they've had, the broken homes they come out of. This is what we're dealing with right now. So, But on the other side of that, when they engage Christ and they make a decision to follow Jesus, then they actually sell out on a level that even we did not, which excites me. They they just, they excite me when I'm around them. When they embrace Jesus, they find that freedom, they find that power, something happens. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's a description really of what we're dealing with. Now, all of us have dealt with these things. 
Someone said earlier that there's nothing new. Well, there's nothing new, but we are told in Scripture that as we get closer to the return of Christ, it's going to intensify. It's not new, but it's more. And, you know, of course, that gives place to the rise of the whole spirit of Antichrist in our age. But it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, mark this. In other words, pay close attention to this. There will be terrible times in the last days. It's interesting. I talk to people that don't know the Lord at all because I'm always on airplanes and I'm always in these, in these environments where I have these conversations. People that don't even know Jesus know we're in the last days. Everybody has a sense of it, whatever that means. How many years that is, we don't know. But we're in that period of time. There will be terrible times in these days because people will love themselves. They'll be self-engrossed. They will love money, and they'll be boastful and proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy. It's really not a good list. It goes down a little bit further, and it says lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And our love is misplaced. It's on ourselves. It's on pleasure. It's on stuff. And we can know that by, and this has already been said this morning too, we know that by how we live our lives, where we spend our money where we spend our time, what we do. Most of that has to do with us. <clears throat> and so it's a problem. And then it goes on a little bit more, and it says there's a form of godliness, but there's no power in it. Because that kind of living where we confess Christ, but we don't live like Christ, has no power. There's nothing in it. It's not the kind that changes somebody. And that's really been the problem, and, and uh, I've watched this over my lifetime, is that people like my great-grandfather, who was a circuit rider, Swedish Methodist circuit rider. That's a rough life, you know, and he knows history, so he's laughing already because he knows. The circuit riders, he, he landed here not too far from here from Sweden, came to the United States and became a circuit rider across what we know as Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. But in those days in Sweden, he started, when, and he would ride a horse to a, a lake, get in a rowboat, and he would row many, many miles, and then he'd get to a river, and he'd take the boat up the river, and then he'd find, after he got off somewhere near a wilderness population of some kind that didn't know the Lord, he would find some mode of transportation, usually a horse, and he would find these remote people. He would speak to them about the gospel. They would respond to it, and they'd form a congregation or a fellowship. And then he'd do that in another wilderness area, and they ran circuits. That's why they were called circuit riders. And they would study and pray on their horse, in between the circuits, and they get paid with eggs and chickens and pigs. And He had nine children. You know, large families were very common. And those children traveled with them. And so when they came to Michigan in the snowy winters in Wisconsin, I know all the cities, I'm writing a book on it actually right now, he planted many, many churches. But the life that he lived, I've, I've got copies of his sermons. They used to publish them, you know, and, and we, re, we found them and redid them. The messages that were preached then are largely not preached now. It's much like my friends in China. You know, I work a lot with the underground church in China, and it's very interesting to look at their tenets of faith. One of their five main tenets is suffering and martyrdom. They lay their lives down on levels that we've not even thought about. It, to them, it's an honor when they're jailed. One of my friends in the underground church in China was in prison 40 times, total of 20 years. And every single week, they put a gun to his head. The closest moment he had with Christ was when he was hung on a metal accordion door 
off the ground with his arms hanging and dangling like this with his joints coming out and they spread the door open and left him there for four hours. He said at that moment he was the closest to Christ on the cross that he'd ever known in his life. But see, we don't know that in our version of Christianity today in the United States. What my great-grandfather did and what he preached and what he talked about and the sacrifice that was expected and the laying down of life on a daily basis is not what's being practiced right now. And this is the core of the problem because that's a disconnect with the next generation. We cannot call them to a form of godliness. We have to call them to a surrendered life under the lordship of Jesus where we're giving up our lives and we say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so I'm talking to us. Most of you are grandparents and parents, and I'm looking around the room. You're more my vintage, okay? And that number actually is shrinking because our friends are dying. But the younger ones are not in the body of Christ for the most part. They have not heard the gospel. So actually, if you look at 2 Timothy again, we read the, the list of conviction of where we're at in the third chapter. But in the fourth chapter, actually, we have a solution. And I want to focus on the solution for our remaining minutes. It says, in presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who would judge the living and the dead. And I think we always have to be that way. We always have to understand that every single one of us are going to live for billions of years, and we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account of this very short life on earth. In light of that, looking at that, in the sense of the understanding that his kingdom is coming soon, he gives us a charge. Through the writer here in 2 Timothy, Paul says this, preach the word. What's God's solution? The word. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But they can't be set free if they don't know the truth. And the truth actually was given to us to share with somebody else. I mean, sometimes people use language like, well, God's going to move when God wants to move. No, God moved and he said to us, go into all the world and preach. Go into all the world and teach. Showed us what that meant. Gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be witnesses. All the stuff we needed to go do that job, and then we sit. That's the problem. And so when I looked at evangelism in America some years ago, in the 80s, a couple things I noticed. One, there were fewer and fewer people going out. There were fewer people in the body of Christ sharing their faith. Fewer people discipling. And sharing our faith as a witness and discipling are not options in the scripture. That wasn't a suggestion. Those are commands, and the final commands Jesus gave. And we don't treat them that way. But to the degree that we present or preach or live out the word of God in the public forum, engage people that don't know what the, what the Lord has done, people who don't know the word, don't know the Bible, haven't encountered anybody who does, okay, to the degree that we go after them and we engage them, to the same degree we're going to see change in our society. So in the 80s, I was looking at this and seeing, well, even those going public, most of the messages were designed for 50-year-olds. Well, they're not the ones who come to Christ. 90% of those who come to Christ are under 18 in the whole world. 70% are under 12. Now, we can't go to them and take a message that's good for us. We're grandparents. We've got to take that message it's not a different message but we have to contextualize it we have to think about what is the world they live in how do we talk to them how are they disciple they're a whole different generation now actually this generation growing up they live with this stuff i didn't live with this stuff my kids laugh when i talk about my how what i grew up with they come over the house just to see the gadgets we used to use 
You know, I used to do, tele, I've had television shows for many years, and, you know, I remember we were all excited about one-inch tape. And we were excited about three-quarter-inch tape and then half-inch tape. And they look at me and go, tape? What are, you, what are you talking about? They put their phone up and press play. It's a totally different world. We used to get our information. You know, I remember we were excited when my parents got encyclopedias. And, you know, we had these big, you know, studying the Word of God. We had these massive concordances that we'd all go through for hours. And my dining room table was always covered with the books. I have more right here than all of the books in the Library of Congress. I have the Library of Congress. All right, this is the world they are in, but they also are, this is a portal to evil at the same time. You know, when I was young, I felt the time would come while I was still alive when that everybody in the world would have the ability to accept good or evil. And it would be right there. And we're there. It's only increasing. So they can pick this up and watch porn. They can listen to the most terrible stuff you'd ever want to hear. They can be contaminated on every level. Or they can use that to study the word of God You know, I have the Bible right here, seven different translations I can go to when I speak, put it in my pocket. I don't have to have seven different Bibles up here. But they aren't making the right choices because they don't even know to make them. And we aren't putting the content on that. We aren't doing the discipling through the tools they use today. They're being discipled in ways we never thought about. So what I did in the early 90s is I redesigned some things. And we started to use arts, entertainment, sport, extreme sport, and uh, preach the word. The word, you know, has to be communicated with all of the ways we communicate. There's 11 different major forms of communication. I'm using one right now. The fact that it's amplified, and you're hearing this in a sound system, that's the second way. The fact that there are lights and there's some choreography, that's the third way. But when you... When we communicate the word to this generation, they're used to five, six, seven different forms of communication all layered on top of each other, or they're not even going to pay attention. They won't even check in, much less check out. What they have to have is they have to have the choreography and the movement, and it has to be oriented toward their generation. They have to be engaged with it in their senses, or they're not going to listen to it, because that's what they're trained in now. You watch little kids getting babysat with these things playing right in front of them. Well, what do you think they're going to be like when they're eight? Come on. This is the generation we are in, so we're bringing something called Impact World. Impact World is built around arts, entertainment, sport, extreme sport. The people that are preaching are actually the ones that do the performances. They love the Lord Jesus. We've trained them in what to say and the, you know, the integrity of the word of God. But they're going to be engaged. And what we're finding is, is that thousands of kids come. The kids like it. The kids enjoy it. But they're also, during that hour and a half, they're engaged with the gospel through so many different presentations. From testimonies that people give from their lives most of whom are young, from video roll-ins to the dancing on the stage, the somebody doing different kinds of extreme sports or skating or bike and BMX or this or that, or people who are athletes or they, they're strong so they can do strength feats. And, uh, all these different nights are gauged to a little different grouping of people, different, different uh, demographic. But let me tell you what happens. When the altar call is given, and they, they don't even have a framework for an altar call. It isn't called that. It's not, you know, we don't have just... Uh, you know, the Billy Graham music playing in the background. I mean, it's a in-your-face, you want to follow Jesus, you want to lay your life down for him, here's what the Word of God says, if so, come. And they just come. They don't know what to do when they get there. I mean, they're, 
laying on their face and this one's crying and you know, it, they don't have all of that. They don't have the protocols down at all. But they want Jesus. And they come 15%, 20%. Let me tell you what's going to happen here in March. The same thing that just happened in several of the places we were last year in the United States. There's going to be so many people coming to Christ. The issue is that we don't have enough trained Christians to disciple them. Or we don't have enough Christians willing to disciple them. We're probably going to see... 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, maybe 2,500 young people come to the, into the kingdom of God. And they're sincere as can be. And they want to lay their lives down. They don't know what to do. Nobody's ever mentored them. In their home, they don't have a witness. We've got to come alongside them. We've got to pray. We've got to disciple them. We've got to get them in the fellowship. But that's us. And that isn't an invitation to a church service because they don't even have a grid for it. Before, long before they get that far. We have got to go to them. You know, really the gospel is about going out. We do this to strengthen ourselves. We have pastors and leaders that nurture us and train us so we can go. That's the whole framework in scripture. The apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher were given to prepare people for works of service. You know, instead of they do the works of service and we all watch them. So we've got to change that. It's on its head right now. Every one of us has to do this. You didn't know you were going to get so exhorted this morning, did you? I get to leave here in a few minutes. But I want to challenge you. <laughs> so I can be direct everywhere I go. Now, I, you must understand that I'm personally convicted by this. Very convicted right now about my own lifestyle and what I'm doing. And I'm a missionary. You know, so I can't imagine how much conviction others are feeling when I say this. But let me just tell you a very brief story, and then I want to challenge you to do something. I'm going to show you a video. My daughter, Kirsten, we have four daughters, two sons, went to a YWMBTS or Discipleship Training School. This is just to show you how radical they are. She was in South Africa. That's where she chose to go. It's a 12-week program, so she's in this 12-week program. And like a good dad, I, I talk to her every week. There's one telephone in the whole campus where she's being trained, so they have to schedule it. And so I call each week, and, how you doing? Great. Yeah, it's wonderful. Tell me a little bit about her teaching. So this goes on until we're in the third month of her, her training, and I call one time, and another girl answers the phone, and I was surprised that it wasn't my daughter. And, and uh, I said, well, this is Mark, and I'm calling for my daughter, Kirsten, and can you go get her, please? And, well, she can't come to the phone right now. Okay, well, should I call back in an hour? And she said, well, she can't come then either. And I said, what do you mean? She says, I can't tell you. Now, you know what that does to a dad. <laughs> I went through the phone to grab her. <clears throat> I said, you will tell me, young lady, and you'll tell me right now. And uh, she said, well, not supposed to. doesn't matter. Tell me now. Well, she can't because she's in bed. Well, she's sick? Well, no, not really. Well, then why is she in bed? I'm not supposed to tell you. And uh, finally, I got her attention, and she said, well, she's fasting, and she's weak, and she can't get up. Well, why is she weak fasting? Because she has fasted ever since she arrived, and she's in her 35th day on a water fast. And I said, well, you go get her. I know she can come to the phone even though she's weak. I want to talk to her. So a few minutes later, she came to the phone. She said, hi, Dad. She's a really very sweet girl. I said, Kirsten, you have fasted on water for 35 days in South Africa? 
said, yeah, Dad, you know, I felt the Lord call me to a 40-day fast, and it's been wonderful. She said, I've encountered the Lord in the levels I've never encountered him. He's so real. All the time, all day I talk to him. He talks to me. His presence is strong. I feel love, and I feel this, and I feel that, and I worship, and it's just so deep. And I'm listening to this getting very convicted, of course. She says, don't make me stop. I said, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go in the kitchen, ask them to make you soup. Just broth is fine, but they have to boil this and that. And you have to get some nutrition in your body. You, you can't starve yourself here. But I'll let you finish. Oh, thank you, Dad. She finished her 40-day fast. Now, let me tell you, that's the group we're talking about that we're going to reach right now. These are young people that are going to do things more radical than we've ever thought of. And I'm excited about that. But that challenges us, doesn't it? How are we going to disciple them when they want to be more radical than us? And they're going to tell their friends. You're going to have to give them three lessons on witnessing. They're going to go out and tell everybody. They want them all their friends to be free. They know their friends are being destroyed, and they're going to go out and tell them. So you better be ready not only to help disciple that one that comes to the altar call. You better be ready to disciple that person and their friends because they're going to go tell their friends. Isn't that great? All right, so here we are. Those who know the Lord, we're already secure in our salvation. What are we going to do? Well, there's two very practical things that have to happen in these next few weeks. One is we need to pray a lot and not just talk about that, but actually set a time aside and get out of bed early, earlier. Turn off the TV. Nothing on there anyway. It's useful. And just pray. Let's go after this in intercession. Let's set aside time and talk to the Lord. He listens. He's very concerned about lost people. If you hadn't noticed, he loved the world so much he gave his son. So he wants us to pray. Then we need to work. And say, well, I'm in my 60s. How am I going to talk to a young person? Let me tell you, the little ones who come to Christ that are 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age like it. And so do their parents when there's somebody older talking to them. Now, the teenagers want to talk to a teenager, so we want the younger ones to be involved as, train, as we call local links or counselors. But we all can do that. And the other thing we need to do is give. You know, this two-week-ago snowstorm actually knocked out our biggest fundraising. Typically, by this time, we would have had most of the budget raised or at least committed or pledged. The budget's about 350000 for the whole month, which is extraordinarily reasonable if you know anything about this to get the sound systems and go to 22 different you know, evening venue locations and bring teams in from around the world. And the reason it's so low, and it doesn't sound low to any one of us maybe, but it is, is our team members raise their own support. There's no salaries in this budget. So these are just the costs. And so, but because what happened two weeks ago, all the main fundraisers that were lined up didn't happen. And uh, so now there's about 170000 that needs to be raised in three weeks. You know, and that's, we've got to do that. Otherwise, we can't get advertising so young people even know about it. Can't get the proper discipleship follow-up materials so we can just help disciple them after the fact. There's some things that will be missing that are very critical and very important. All right, so this morning I want you to consider what you might do. I want the way, best way, I think, to look at it is, and this is what I like to do, is just, okay, if there's a need like that, in this case 170000 to finish this budget up, 
ask the Lord, Lord, what part of that am I meant to carry? You know, he's given all of us something to steward. And sometimes, you know, we're, we're set up for a time like this. I was praying with my wife this morning, and she's studying Esther. Esther was ready for a certain time in, in history. God had prepared her for that. And sometimes he prepares us, and we have some ability to do something that God pre-prepared. And uh, if we'll listen. So we're going to pray here in a couple of minutes and ask the Lord what we should do, and then obey him and just do what he said. But we can do this. We can get this finished, 170. I mean, this is a prosperous area of the country. We have means. We just need to ask the Lord what he wants us to do, and then let's do it. I can't think of anything more important to invest in than reaching the young people with the word of God. I mean, seriously. This next generation, our kids and grandkids and other people's kids and grandkids, that's the biggest deal. I mean, all the other stuff isn't going to go with us. But that's eternal. That's a really big thing. That's why I still do what I do. All right, but let's watch this video together. And at the end of that, we're going to give you an envelope and a card and give you a chance to participate. Let's watch this video together. 